We are Awakened Church in Bonesse, and this is our podcast. Welcome. So uh, we've been preaching through the book of Daniel, a fantastic book in the, in the middle of the Old Testament. And for many of us, we haven't really studied it or, or, or learned about it since we were in, in you know, Sunday school watching it being played by an asparagus and a tomato. But there's a lot here, I think, that goes over the heads of, of a lot of children and actually is quite complex and sophisticated and calls us as adult readers to, to be in the text and the story. So today uh, we're in Daniel chapter 4. And last week, we looked at the statue that the great king of Babylon had erected in Daniel 2 and 3. Um, he'd had a dream about this gold statue, and then he woke up from his dream, and he built this huge golden statue made of gold uh, and representing his own imperial power. And so in this way, it's a statue that has ears but could not hear, a mouth but could not speak. The statue represented an image of a human that was no human at all, simply a symbol of splendor and majesty and ultimate incompetence. And we learned that the king of Babylon had decreed that anyone who did not bow down and worship the image when they heard the royal music was thrown into a fiery furnace to suffer the wrath of the king. And we notice the irony of elevating yourself as the one true human, the ideal human, the virtuous and good human, and then demanding that all other humans acknowledge you as the climax of human greatness. And then subjecting them to pain and suffering until they blindly and numbly submit to your claim to greatness. The ultimate outcome of this kind of like imperialism is that no one gets to be human. Everyone has no choice but to become numb and blind and mute and to submit and obey and become a robot going through the motions or to become like an animal in survival mode, dog eat dog. In attempting to elevate yourself above all other humans and force them to um, become just like you, you end up stripping all of humanity of their dignity and all of humanity of their voice until everyone becomes just like that golden statue, powerless to move or feel or cry out or change anything. And what I love so much about the book of Daniel is, so we'll see this today in Daniel 4, uh, the same irony is being unveiled, but with a different metaphor. In Daniel 4, it's not a golden statue, but the king is having another dream, and this time the image is of this gigantic world tree, the great world tree. And it's a different metaphor, and it's really profound. So I'm just going to read to you a few verses from Daniel 4. It begins as like a letter being issued out by the great king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, and it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living at ease in my home and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that frightened me. My fantasies in bed and the visions of my head terrified me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me in order that they might tell me the interpretation of the dream. So the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not tell me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and who is endowed with the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream. O oh, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that you are endowed with the spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Hear the dream that I saw and tell me its interpretation. And upon my bed, this is what I saw. There was a tree at the center of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew great and strong. Its tops reached to the heavens. It was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and it provided food for all. The animals of the field found shade under it. The birds of the air nested in its branches, and from it all living beings were fed. 
This is an incredible dream. I would like to have a dream. Like, this is beautiful. As someone who really likes trees, I love this dream. But so he, here the king is having another dream. Uh, he isn't dreaming of golden statues that represent his empire, but he is in fact dreaming about himself again. He is dreaming of a great tree. And it's not just a random image. Um, like a tree is like, oh, well, that's a beautiful symbol. But this would have been a very familiar archetype in the context when this story was written. It's not a random image. It's a very common image in the ancient Near East. And believe it or not, this idea of the tree as a metaphor for a human or a king or a nation is actually all throughout the Bible, especially in the prophets. Throughout the ancient Near East, um, and if you think about it, it makes sense. So throughout the ancient Near East, trees symbolize the joining of the heavens to the earth. So you have this symbol of like these branches that re reach up to the sky and these roots that reach all the way down to Sheol. And so um, the saying is, as above, so below. The tree represents this mirroring image, as above, so below, with the branches and the roots. And so there's this kind of ancient idea that there's a tree in the middle of the kind of cosmos, which connects the world above to the world below. Think about the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. The tree represents the place where the divine makes contact with the mundane. So think about the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Think about in the tabernacle or in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, there's a menorah, a seven-branched tree that represents the tree of life. And on this uh, menorah or seven-branch tree, there are also like candles and the flame is lit and the priests have to keep these flames lit forever. So this tree of life is also a symbol of the burning bush that is always on fire, though never consumed, from which the voice of God speaks. The tree, it's a very big deal in the ancient Near East. Just as there are two trees in the Garden of Eden, a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there are also two humans. And if you think about the big biblical story, trees, uh, just like humans, are told to bear fruit. You judge a tree by its fruit in the same way you're meant to discern the trustworthiness of a person um, by their fruit. And so I want to show you, I'm going to be a little nerdy for a moment, a few places in the Bible uh, where you see this really strongly. And some of these are maybe passages you've like, I've never read this before. I I'm going to show you this idea where trees show up, the metaphor for a human or a people or a nation. The first one is from Judges chapter 9, and it's like a parable. And so I put this um, tree beard, tree end story. And it's where all these trees get together and they're like, who should reign over us? It's been a while since I saw Lord of the Rings, but I'm going to try and read this like a, like a tree. No, just it says in this little parable, the, the trees once went out to anoint a king over themselves. So they said to the olive tree, reign over us. The olive tree answered them, shall I stop producing my rich oil by which gods and mortals are honored and go to sway over the trees? Then the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree answered them, Shall I stop producing my sweetness and my delicious fruit and go to sway over the trees? Then the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I stop producing my wine that cheers gods and mortals and go to sway over the trees? So all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And if you keep reading in Judges 9, it's like, the, it's a parable against this really bad king. Like, really? This is the best we could do? There's mighty cedars and sequoias and vine trees, and we got this bramble? It's a political uh, critique of, of the king that they have. And then look at in Psalm 92, all throughout the Psalms, humans are compared to trees. It says, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord and they flourish in the courts of our God. In old age, they still produce fruit. They are always green and full of sap, showing that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. 
In Ezekiel 17, God is using tree language to talk about his kingdom that's coming. It says, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of a cedar and I will set it out. And I will break off a tender one from the topmost its young twigs and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it in order that it may produce boughs and bear fruit and become a noble cedar. Under it, every kind of bird will live. In the shade of its branches will nest winged creatures and every kind. All the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree, and I make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree, and I make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will accomplish it. Almost done, this quick tour through the Bible. Exodus 31, you will love this here, and this is kind of building us up to the, the king's dream in Daniel 4. In Ezekiel 31, the prophet is speaking um, to a king of another nation, not Babylon, but Egypt, and he's speaking about um, another king, it gets complicated, Assyria, the king of Assyria. It says, mortal, say to the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his hordes, whom are you like in your greatness? Consider Assyria, so now Assyria is the empire that's a tree, a cedar of Lebanon, with fair branches and forest shade and of great height, its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it, the deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place where it was planted, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large and its branches long. From abundant water in its shoots, all the birds of the air made their nests in its boughs. Under its branches, all the animals of the field gave birth to their young, and in its shade, the great nations lived. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it. I love when God says weird things like that in the Bible. Like, I'll even admit, the king of Assyria is beautiful, look better even than my trees. He says, the cedars in the garden of God could not rival it. No tree in the garden of God was like it in beauty. I made it beautiful with its massive branches. The envy of all the trees of Eden that were in the garden of God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds and its heart was proud of its height, I gave it into the hand of the prince of the nations. And I sometimes get obnoxiously excited about the Bible when I read this like, so I gave it into the hand of the prince of the nations. If you're really nerdy and know ancient history, the prince of the nations he's referring to is the king of Babylon. In the year 605 BC, it was the great king of Babylon which conquered the Assyrian empire. The king of Babylon took out this great tree. The trees of God could not rival this tree, but the king of Babylon showed up in an epic battle in 605 and cut down the great tree of Assyria. And now in Daniel 4, here we are, and that king is dreaming of himself as the big, beautiful, powerful tree. And at the end of the dream, this is the next part, in his dream, the tree gets cut down. Daniel um, 4, 13 to 16, it says, this is the king speaking about his dream. He says, I continued looking in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and there was a holy watcher coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said, cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from beneath it and the birds from its branches, but leave its stump and roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let him be bathed with the dew of heaven, and let his lot be with the animals of the field in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a human, and let the mind of an animal be given to him, and let seven times pass over him. 
So it's this very dramatic, sort of apocalyptic, like, cut down the tree. I'm not sure, this is how my brain works, I can hear the words of John the Baptist in Matthew 3. An Advent text, John the Baptist, what does he say to the religious leaders who were exalting themselves over their fellow humans? John the Baptist there at the River Jordan is crying out, even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So are we on the same page now? Trees, big deal, common metaphor. And this idea of a tree being cut down, but then after you cut it down, a tiny shoot grows up. That's the metaphor often of like when the king dies, then his son, who's new to the throne, is that little shoot, you know? And it's like, will he become great? That's the anxiety, I think, of a new king. And so here, uh, the metaphor takes an interesting turn. The king is a tree, but the tree must be cut down. But then the tree, it says, the tree is then bathed with the dew of heaven and he becomes an animal. So never in this dream is the human just a human. He's a tree, but then also the tree's cut down and then the pronouns are, are unusual. It's like, and then he, the tree, I guess, or what the tree represents, the king, must be bathed with the dew of heaven and he becomes an animal. He becomes non-human which tells us that there's this dance happening here. It's brilliant. I, I think the, the author of this story, the narrator, is just winking at us. There's a dance. I mean, it's happening here in Daniel 4, but it's the, it's the dance that happens throughout the whole of Daniel, a dance around the theme of humanness. Who is human in this story? Who is human in the book of Daniel? It can't be Daniel and his friends. They're not the humans in the story, because if you remember, in chapter 1, they were taken captive, forced to assimilate to Babylonian personhood. They were given new names, new diets, and they were cut off from their families and ancestral ways of knowing. They were told they must worship the Babylonian king. They must embody the Babylonian dream state. And in a couple chapters, we will learn that they aren't even allowed to pray to their own gods in private, lest they be subject to death. So Daniel and his friends cannot represent the humans in this story because they have been dehumanized. They have been stripped of their personhood. But the king, the one forcing everyone to become like him, He's not portrayed as a human either. He's either a golden statue, a great tree, or now an animal. And we will see an animal that grows talons and feathers. And so this play on themes of personhood is really important to understanding actually uh, the gospel and the entire biblical narrative. So I'm gonna, I'm very excited, okay. I'm gonna riff here for a second on something in Genesis and I hope you guys are like, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. So, okay, do you remember Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis one to three? They're naked, and they're unashamed, sort of like animals, yeah? You say animals are genuinely walking around naked and unashamed? Yeah, if anyone has a dog, and you're like, what's that sound late at night? It's like he's licking himself. He is naked and unashamed. So the animals, the humans, I mean, are in the garden in Genesis 1 to 3. They're naked and unashamed. They're eating fruit from trees. Uh, they're completely connected to God and one another and to the rest of the animal kingdom of which they are both a part of and yet set apart from. Humans and animals are both created on day six. And even though humans and animals are both formed from the soil, the same language is there on day six, both humans and animals had the breath of life breathed into them. It's interesting because one of the main themes of the, the creation story is that humans are not exactly the same as animals. Humans were given a special status to be slightly higher than the animal kingdom, or perhaps a more uh, responsible way of saying that is that humans were given a greater responsibility to maintain God's shalom, uh, the shalom of the garden upon, you know, in the world. But in Genesis 3, we're introduced to this talking serpent, which is strange, because serpents aren't supposed to talk. Is it a human, or is it an animal? It's the dance. What, an, what a human thing for a serpent to be doing, talking. 
And here are these naked and unashamed humans talking to a serpent. Like, this is the metaphor there in Genesis 1 to 3. I think our kind of like post-enlightenment, like creation versus young earth thing that took over our imagination for like 200 years makes it so it's hard to notice this play here of like, what is a human? But this serpent appears. And we're told in Genesis that the serpent is the wisest of all the animals on earth. And so, of course, the serpent would be the one to approach the humans. And the serpent whispers to them, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And then the serpent says, the, the woman Eve is like, well, yeah, we can't eat from it or else we'll die. And the serpent says, you won't die, you know, because he's the wisest. He's kind of like a Daniel figure here, telling them the insights of God. He's like, uh, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. So it's this very clever, shrewd serpent is like, hmm, what are you? Um, he's asking Adam and Eve where they fit in the big picture of things. He's saying, are you animals or are you gods? And just before the scene with the serpent in Genesis 2, I don't know if you, how closely you've read Genesis 2 lately. For me, it's like super recent. But Adam had sort of, there's this, line, there's this kind of text that suggests that Adam had tried to find a mate among all the animal kingdom. He had sort of like, couldn't find a mate. And it shouldn't shock us that Adam maybe thought that he could find a mate among the animals. Um, because as I pointed out a minute ago, um, both humans and animals were formed from the dirt. It's the same language. Uh, on the same day, God breathed the breath of spirit of life into the human, and the human became a living being. But that same title is given to the animals. They're the same creature. So the serpent appears to be challenging the humans to answer the same question that Daniel 4 is asking us. What is humanity? Are you godlike beings, fundamentally different from animals? Or are you nothing more than glorified animals, fundamentally different from God? And um, Eve answers the question. She takes the fruit of the tree and eats, revealing her desire. I would like to be godlike creature. And that becomes this, the original sin. After eating the fruit, Adam and Eve experience shame, and they go into hiding, which is something animals have never experienced. They go lower. They go into hiding. They experience shame. And when God finds them, what does he say? He whispers to them, or, or he finds them, and he says, who told you you were naked? Which is key. His animals don't know they're naked. It's as if God asks, where did you get this idea from? And, and then God has to kill animals to make leather clothing for them, to separate them more from animals. And it's a really fascinating story, which puts this question at the beginning of the biblical narrative. What are you? What does it mean to be a human? Are you a god? No, are you a beast? Are you a golden statue that is totally incompetent but looks beautiful? Are you a tree? What are you? And all the characters in the Bible, like no one can figure out like just how to be a human. So in Daniel 4, this is what the interpretation is. This is what Daniel says. He says, you shall be driven away from human society and your dwelling shall be with the wild animals. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen and you shall be bathed with the dew of heaven and seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will. As it was commanded to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be reestablished for you from the time that you learn that heaven is sovereign. Therefore, O king, may my counsel be acceptable to you. Atone for your sins with righteousness and your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed, so that your prosperity may, may be prolonged. It's like until you can figure out how to be a human, how to be someone who bears the image of God with this extra responsibility upon the earth, uh, which looks like mercy to the oppressed, which looks like genuinely care and concern over those who are under your care. Until then, you will live among the beasts. 
I think it's fascinating. My husband David is a therapist who specializes in wilderness therapy, and he worked at a recovery center for a long time for men uh, struggling with addiction to live in the wilderness, like go off-grid, live on the land. And it's a very, very successful program. Uh, like there's not really any like it, because it's like when you spend some time remembering that you are you know, a part of the grand web, there's something therapeutic about that. And God's like, I'm gonna bring you down from your throne. You stop dreaming about gold and trees. We're gonna put you down with the animals. Immediately the sentence was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven away from human society, ate grass like oxen, and his body was bathed with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails became like birds' claws. This is a very big deal. I know that like, if you grew up in the church, you've heard the word Nebuchadnezzar before, but like, in the ancient world, this is also a name everybody knows for like thousands of years. Nebuchadnezzar is like an extremely famous person in history. Um, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, John Golden Gay, um, describes Nebuchadnezzar's reign really succinctly, and I just wanted to quote him. He says, Nebuchadnezzar is like a tree reaching from the earth to the heavens and protecting the birds which themselves defy the boundaries between heaven and earth. And yet the king is subject to judgment from the heavens. The heavens to which he reached will supply his humble needs as it supplies those of the realm of creation. The king must look to the heavens as the real source of help rather than pretending to be self-sufficient. This is no understatement. Nebuchadnezzar was an exceptional human. Nebuchadnezzar was almost godlike. The palace from which King Nebuchadnezzar surveyed Babylon was one of the citadels on the north side of the city. It had large courts, reception rooms, throne rooms, residences, and the famous hanging gardens then the main thing this king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was known for was creating beautiful gardens. He was actually known for traveling the world and finding foreign species of trees, uprooting them and planting them in his hanging gardens. He was a tree collector. He's famous for his gardens and it was apparently built on this hanging garden palace for his Midian queen. From the palace, if you can't imagine how big this is, think like a Trump Tower or something. From the palace, he would see in the distance the city's 16 mile outer double wall which he had built. And his palace stood just inside the double wall of the inner city, which was punctuated by eight gates. And this encircled an area that's two miles by a half mile. And guess what? Through the king's palace runs the river Euphrates. A river flowing from your throne? This man is a god. The palace adjoined to a processional avenue that Nebuchadnezzar had paved with limestone and decorated side to side with lion figures. The magnificence of Babylon became legendary throughout the ancient world, and the grandeur of his palaces, temples, and fortifications ultimately stood as a testament to the power of the God of Babylon as manifested on earth through the chosen king. The Babylonians believed there's one person who bears the image of God, and it's the king. And so now we have this king that was famous for his glory and his, his almost divinity, but he's going to be brought down. He's going to be brought down so far that he will not become a human like the rest of us, we think. He will be brought down until he's like an animal. Until the time when he learns that the point of having any authority over creation at all is to have mercy on the poor and the lowly. For this is what it means to be human. To have compassion and mercy and a thirst for justice and goodness and beauty upon the land that God loves. To love the creatures that God loves. And it's, it's so profound, like this sermon just preaches itself because Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh, creator become creature. Jesus' favorite title for himself is the human one, the son of man. And he did not come, if you think about, if you've ever read a gospel, Jesus did not come to teach us how to become gods. 
He doesn't do that. He, he comes to teach us how to become truly human again. We know this. Paul calls him the second Adam. He's like, round two of being human. That's what I made you for. That's what you're going to do. You're going to bear the image of God. And Jesus teaches us how to become human again, how to maintain shalom. Jesus treats his neighbors with genuine concern and care. He doesn't treat anyone according to like social rank. He teaches us to touch and be touched. He teaches us to weep and to laugh, to eat together, to dream together, to be neighbors together. And it turns out, any psychologist in the room, it's not very human to oppress and harm each other. It's not very human to actually neglect someone. This story in Daniel here shows us a king who dehumanizes everyone in his kingdom. But a dehumanizing king becomes dehumanized. It's a pretty beautiful metaphor because it's true. When you hurt someone else, when you treat another person as being less than you, you also end up becoming less human. When you look away from injustice in your own neighborhood or harden your heart to the cries of your neighbors, both you and your neighbors suffer dehumanization. You become more numb, like the statue, and they are brought down and made like animals um, just trying to survive. And so humans are meant to be the ones with soft hearts made of flesh, with hearts that feel concern and compassion. You can't hurt someone without becoming less human. Um, I remember reading in the news a story of like a chicken factory where there's like 50,000 chickens in a tiny space with no light, laying eggs nonstop and all the brutal inhumane, that's a good word, inhumane thing happening to the chickens. And the staff there, they're like these videos released because the staff were just like presented in these videos as absolute monsters. They're just like abusing these chickens, like kicking them, throwing them, like chickens are dying. Like they're just rough, being so rough. And I saw this interview where one of the, the staff like saw the video and was really struck by it because he saw how he was acting. And he was sort of weeping and he was like, when you work in this environment where you're just sending chicken, like it's just a, you lose your sense of humanity. You just become a robot and a killer and these chickens are nothing to you. And he's like, it just, it just it takes your humanity. You can't survive it. Like I think of people who work in Cargill. He's like, if you are doing violent things over and over, you can't survive it unless you yourself become less human. And so um, this is such a, a profound metaphor right in the middle of Daniel. I love it so much. Um, the king is brought down until he sees what it is to be human again, to find himself as a part of the whole, to see himself as a vulnerable, needy, and interdependent being, to be fed from the ground like the other animals. And now to imagine food appears as if we were tiny gods saying, let there be food, and 30 minutes later it appears at our doorstep. The king grows talons and feathers and eats grass and becomes a creature among creatures. And once again, the line between creator and creature comes into view, the line that the great kings of the world always try to obscure. So as I was speaking uh, a moment ago about the serpent, you may have wondered and perhaps are still waiting for when I would be like, the serpent is the devil. But I'm not going to do that in this sermon. I'm not going to say that this, the serpent represents Satan. In fact, something really wild. The Old Testament never does that about the serpent. And I want to actually show you um, Isaiah 14 which is the place in the Bible that we get our theology uh, that we have about uh, Satan and the devil. And it's actually a, an oracle spoken to the king of Babylon, to this king Nebuchadnezzar. It says, When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil, and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. This is the taunt you'll get one day. He's like, one day, when we shut the mouth of that empire, you will sing this song. You will take up this taunt. You will say, How the oppressor has ceased. Nerd alert, the Hebrew there is Sabbathed. He's like, if you don't give people their rest, I will rest you myself. How the oppressor has ceased. 
The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of ruler that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet, and they break forth into singing. The cypresses exalt over you, saying, Since you were laid low, no one comes to cut us down anymore. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will speak and say to you, You too have become as weak as we are. You have become like us. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star. Uh, the Latin word of that is Lucifer. Son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low. You who said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds like the tree in his dream. I will make myself like the most high. I'm not a human, I'm a God. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this? Could it be? Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook the kingdoms? Who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities? Who would not let his prisoners go home? The mighty are brought down and the lowly are lifted up. And the great king of Babylon is brought down and the whole earth finds its Sabbath rest because no longer is someone dominating them and squeezing them into tiny subservient boxes. Here in Isaiah, uh, we have this oracle which looks to a day when the world will be governed by a set of values where the Sabbath rest and shalom of God would be experienced by everyone. Like in the Garden of Eden, before the serpent exposed the human heart's desire for more power and more glory. And so, of course, I love it. This is where the text draws us toward our true longing for the kingdom, where there's rest. For a king that does not use his power for his own gain, but rather empties himself of all power. If you think of the day of Pentecost, pours it out upon all flesh, becomes a servant of all, and becomes one who exposes the shame and incompetence of empire. And that king, for us, we see a description in Isaiah 11. And if you're like, oh, there's way too many Bible verses in this sermon. She'll be like, if you think of everything we've done this service, I, it's, I love us. Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. And here, you're like, it feels like Christmas all of a sudden. Don't go to Superstore. The Christmas stuff is coming out. It's not Advent yet, but I'm, due, I'm pulling a bit of a Superstore here. <laughs> Isaiah 11, 1 to 10 says, A shoot shall come out from the stalk of Jesse. Oh, it's a branch on a tree. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. He'll proclaim good news to the poor. That's a different the spirit of wisdom and understanding. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see. He will not decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. The young shall lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. What on earth? When kings like Nebuchadnezzar rule the world, we all become like animals. When this king rules the world, even the animals start acting like humans. It's the grand reversal. And why is it that the lions will start eating straw? Uh, he says the nursing child could play over the hole of the ass, which is a venomous snake. The weaned child could put his hand on the adder's den, but they will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. You know why? Because the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Even snakes will have knowledge not to hurt the child. It's like that's what true knowledge is. That's what true, the serpent didn't tell Eve that. True knowledge results in this. But the knowledge that you could be a God does not. 
And so we have a king who does not dehumanize anyone. We have a king who does not act like an animal or like a robot or like a statue made of gold. He is the son of man, or a better translation would be the human one. And he governs according to shalom and rest. And so the kingdom of God, or perhaps in the theme of the sermon, we would call it the grand ecology. It's a place where your nervous system is regulated and it feels safe to be seen and to be vulnerable and to be connected in community. And to follow Jesus, the incarnate one, is to come home to your humanity, to see yourself as a creature among creatures and to love the world that God loves to meet all living beings as if meeting a friend, a neighbor, a fellow creature. Um, and so as we can imagine, it will be a different kind of tree that ultimately ends up linking heaven to earth. A different kind of tree. At the communion table, we meet the tree that reconciles all the broken parts of our world back into the whole. We meet the king of the Jews hanging on a cross, saying, I am for you, take and eat. Becoming human again, he says, become human again, become human together, feel your hunger, feel the delight of eating together, forgive each other, release each other, find rest together, begin to work for the good of one another. And when we meet again on that day, the world will be changed according to the dream we dream at this communion table. A dream where we all come out of hiding and find our place at the feast of creation. Jesus says in Mark 4, um, what, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, yet when it is sown it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And Paul tells us, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And so we look to a tree uh, that we meet at, at this table as the place where heaven and earth meets. We look to um, a king who brings the mighty down and lifts up the lowly. <laughs> As a benediction for our gathering, um, I was reminded earlier this week of a poem. Uh, it was in my dreams, which is very, because it, it, said, it calls the Holy Spirit the root of the world tree. Um, so this is uh, Spiritus Sanctus uh, Vivificans by Hildegard von Biggen, a member of the Great Cloud of Witnesses. May you go from here knowing that you have met with the Spirit of God, who is a life that bestows life root of the world tree and wind in its boughs scrubbing out sins she rubs oil into wounds she is glistening life alluring all praise all awakening all resurrecting awakened church is located in mckinstis specifically the neighborhood of bonas most of us are settler descendants who have benefited from the legacy of colonialism and forced assimilation, which continues to harm the people of this land. We are committed to reckoning with our history and taking action towards reconciliation as envisioned by Indigenous leaders and knowledge keepers. Treaty 7 was signed not so long ago between the sovereign nation of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, the Sutina, and the Canadian government. We honor that at the heart of the treaty was a dream for a shared future, and we wholeheartedly believe in this dream. 
For information on who we are and how you can support the work of Awaken, check us out at awakenchurch.ca. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Awaken Phonest.